Hello and welcome to the Cumberland Podcast. My name is Chris Fleming. I am the Adult Ministries Coordinator for the Ministry Council of the Cumberland Presbyterian Church, and we're going to talk about the lectionary text for February the 2nd, 2020. But before we get into that, I wanted to let you know about a couple things that we have as resources for the denomination. Coming up on Ash Wednesday this year, February 26, 2020, we're going to be observing a denominational day of prayer and fasting. We're going to call it Pray, Fast, and Act. It's a day for all Cumberland Presbyterians to pray and fast together to renew and revitalize all of us to bear witness to God's mighty act of reconciling love accomplished in Jesus Christ by which the sins of the world are forgiven. We have churches in all the time zones in the world as Cumberland Presbyterians, and we're asking each church in every part of the world to pray so that we'll cover the whole day with prayer and fasting. As the result of that, we would act in the Spirit of God to proclaim His kingdom, to establish a greater presence of of the kingdom of God, and that we as a church would be faithful to the call of loving God and loving our neighbor. I also wanted to let you know about a resource that we have and uh, that not a lot of people know about, but it's a good resource. If you're looking for a small group or maybe a different type of study for your Sunday school class, we offer what's called Intersections. It's where Bible and life meet. It's a curriculum uh, for adults written for and by Cumberland Presbyterians. These resources are organized around themes, with each theme being printed as a separate book. Each lesson provides general content of biblical background and content, context in addition to a Bible, into the Bible story. The content includes conversational questions to aid in the facilitation of lesson discussions. The resources have a strong focus on how to apply the Bible to one's life. Each lesson contains daily intersections that are meant to reinforce the lesson by posting questions for additional thought or action throughout the week. Users are encouraged to use the daily intersections as daily intersects as a journal uh, through the week. The material is not dated, but there are 52 lessons each year, and there's a three-year cycle. It can be used for Sunday school or a small group resource or in other settings. So if you want to get some more information on that, you can call the Resource Center. Cindy will help you there, or you can get on the cpcmc.org website. So that would be cpcmc.org forward slash store, and that will get you to where you can find all of our curriculum. All right, so today we're going to talk about the lectionary text for February the 2nd. It's the fourth Sunday after Epiphany. There's also the option of doing the presentation of our Lord Sunday, but we're going to focus on the fourth Sunday after Epiphany. Those texts are Micah 6, 1 through 8, Psalm 15, 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 31, and Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. One of the general themes for the day is that there's a striving against God. By that I mean the worship in Uh, Micah was egocentric. It was about what uh, the people were doing simply to to, to their own gain and benefit. In the Psalms passage, there's a question that says, who can can dwell in the house of the Lord? Uh, There's struggles between wisdom and worldly wisdom and heavenly wisdom. And then there's, in the Matthew passage, this renunciation of the world's values and a replacement with the values of the kingdom of heaven in the Beatitudes. The second theme is the characteristics of a believer. These passages uh, also describe how believers should think and act in a world that constantly encourages us to hide our little light under a bushel, or that the world constantly tries to trick us into adopting worldly values or human values over the kingdom values. Third theme would be humility. In the Micah passage, God challenges the people to be submissive and humble and to show that through proper living, uh, you can live a life pleasing to God. In the Psalm passage, there is a sense of a humility before the Lord, In the Corinthians passage, Paul has to remind the believers that their standing before God was because of the call that they received, not some secret knowledge or worldly merit. 
And of course, one of the greatest pieces of literature in all of world religions is the Beatitude. Jesus uh, tells about eight characteristics that define Christian values, especially humility, and a state of blessedness that you can attain when you lose your desires for the sake of Christ and you gain or you pick up Christ values. A fourth uh, theme would be wisdom. It's a major theme of Scripture. It's wisdom. What is it? Where does it come from? And how do we get it? So turning to the uh, preaching of the... You could preach the whole. You could use all of these... Um, passages for this Sunday to make one pretty tight sermon. Um, It could be titled something as living as the light or even what does the Lord require of you. The point of all these passages taken together is that there is a certain attitude by which we're to live. It's an attitude of humility. And, And God requires both our attitude and actions to be in line with the values of the kingdom of God. So if you turn to the text individually, Micah 6, 1 through 8, it's a famous passage, just um. A quick story, one of the elders from my church passed away, and he was a guy who embodied humility and and goodness. One day, me and him were talking about how to make the church a little little more beautiful, a little curb appeal. I was like, well, what about a prayer garden, a memorial garden? So he drew up plans and left them on his desk at work. After he died, his boss found the plans, and he called me up and said, I want to make this happen. And so... uh, This man's boss wrote a big check to the church, and we were able to build and maintain a garden. And inside that garden is a big wooden cross stuck in a concrete base, and on that concrete base is this verse from Micah 6.8, Walk humbly before God. The uh, first point of this passage that you could preach is that God's people sometimes need an attitude check or a revival, if you will. Oftentimes we talk about revival, and we put up tents, and we invite the community of lost souls around us, and we preach the gospel, hoping to convert the lost sinner. But the truth is, a revival is a little different. It means uh, something different. From Merriam-Webster, it's an act or instance of reviving, a renewed interest in something. It's a restoration or of force or effect. The point is that a revival is for the people of God, not just for the lost souls of the community. A revival brings back something old, something that's dead, something that was once alive but not anymore. Our churches do need a revival, but it might not look like the old tent revivals. It may look like people in our church that begin to wrestle with the question that God puts forth in verse 3. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? And the second point in this text would be that revival comes through the remembrance of what God has done. In our passage, God recounts the Exodus and how God intervened when King Balak tried to use Balaam to curse the Israelites. Instead, Balaam ends up blessing the Israelites. And then it talks about God saving acts from Shittim to Gilgal, You can find that story in Numbers uh, 22 through 25. After Balaam refuses to curse the Israelites, Balak seeks another way to destroy uh, the Israelites. He uses women and idol worship to influence the Israelites away from the one true God. So the Israelites begin to have sexual relations with the Moabite women, and in turn, the Moabite women influence them to bow down to a god named Peor. You'll see in that text that God sends a plague and he's very unhappy and he's begin, his anger is beginning to burn uh, toward the Israelites. But then uh, uh, Eleazar, no, Phineas, uh, son of Eleazar, saw one of the Israelite men uh, sleeping with the Midianite women and he goes and he stabs them both in their belly. He takes a big um, spear and he goes and he stabs them. And so that stopped the plague from among the Israelites. Then God uh, tells 
Moses that because Phineas has acted this way, he, he will relent from punishing the Israelites even more. And instead of punishing the Israelites, God says, go and take down the Midianites and the Moabites. And so in that sense, God saved the people. And so the, the point is to hearken back to how God has saved you, how God has made a way uh, in the desert, how God has taken the, the frustration in your life and he's turned it around to his glory and your benefit. It's that basis then in which a revival comes. We remember the good things of the past. Third, revival comes when we have a personal affection for God. Even in the Old Testament, God expected a personal relationship. Many people that I know say that ritual is cold and dead, and that's why they don't practice a liturgical service. That's not the point of any of these Old Testament passages. The point is that we offer service to God and sacrifice and right worship, but we understand it's meaningless if we perform it, if we don't perform it with the correct attitude and love toward God. There are no sacrifices or duties that we can discharge as Christians that are more important than the attitude we have toward God and our fellow human being. Our attitude must be one of humility and love. That's how we have to live this life, love of God and love of others. Then we perform the commands of God and we worship correctly. In the church today, sometimes it looks like we go through the motions. We show up, we sing a bit, throw some money in the offering plate, go home. Sunday's done, let's watch football. But it can't be that way. A distant relationship with God leads to stale worship. A passionate pursuit of God leads to life-giving worship. Ultimately, God wants us, not our things. God already has plenty of things. He wants us, our hearts and our lives. That leads us to the psalm passage. It really lends itself to a responsive call to worship, but if you want to preach it, here's some points to consider. Uh, first, like the verse in Micah 6, eight, it begins with a question. Who can abide? Who can dwell in God's sanctuary? I don't know if you've ever heard someone say this, but more often than I'd ever want to, I would invite someone to church and they'd say, Preacher, I can't go to that church. The walls would fall in. And I've always thought that was so stupid. I mean, of all the evil people in the world, you think you're that great and terrible that this church that's been standing for 100 years is all of a sudden going to drop down? I don't think so. But anyway, whatever floats your boat. You can set this up by talking about what many people think church is about. right? So when you invite people, they may say, Well, I can't give enough, so I know I won't be accepted there or I don't dress well enough to go to that church, or I'm not good enough to go there. All these things people suppose are barriers to coming to church can, can be asked. Who can stand? Who can dwell in God's temple? The second point would be God doesn't really focus on the material things that most of our human, uh, human our most humanity uh, thinks about. Uh, instead, like the Micah passage, God simply seeks the worshiper with the proper attitude the desire to be in a relationship with God and human beings. So verse 2 through 5 defines the attitude of those who really get it. The first attitude of those who get it is that a person who can stand in the sanctuary of the Lord is one who desires right and desires truth. They want things to be right. They want to seek truth. Second thing is those who don't gossip or do evil to their friends. And third, those who hate evil and fear God and then the fourth thing is those who do not take advantage of other people. Now here's the trick. This was a psalm of David who, who wrote these things. And as much as we uphold David as a great king and a great man after God's own heart, we also know that David struggled. We certainly wouldn't call his whole life blameless and upright, but the intention of David was to follow passionately after God. He was a man after God's own heart. David had an attitude that would pursue God. He wasn't good all the time, but it was his intent 
to follow God. And this is the person who can stand in the Lord's and dwell in the Lord's temple. Those who have the intention of pursuing God, even if they're not really good at it. And the third point being is that those who are intent on uh, following God find sanctuary in their relationship with God. The final words of the psalm is that those who do these things shall never be moved. While the psalm speaks about going into the sanctuary, it ends by saying the person whose attitude is right before God, whose heart seeks God, will never be moved. The most basic biblical definition of sanctuary is the dwelling place of God, or literally a refuge. Those who pursue God will never be moved from the sanctuary. That's who can stand and dwell in God's temple or sanctuary. Next is the Corinthians passage. It's a favorite of many preachers that I know. The first thing that you could talk about is there are two types of wisdom, godly wisdom and human wisdom. If you'd like to, take a little turn to Proverbs chapter 9 because it provides a really good background for this passage. In Proverbs 9, there's an invitation to wisdom and folly. The neat part to Proverbs chapter 9 is that wisdom and folly share, share some similar characteristics, but the end of following either couldn't be more opposite. Both wisdom and folly are illustrated by sitting out at the door at the front of their doorpost and both call to the quote-unquote simple ones to come and eat in their home. Both wisdom and folly offer food and drink. Wisdom offers food and wine. Folly offers, st- uh, offers stolen water and food. Wisdom leads to life. Folly leads to death. It is the spiritual discerning person that knows which house to dwell in. So that sets up what Paul's writing about in 1 Corinthians. Divisions are emerging in the Corinthian church, and the root cause of it is pride in a, in a trying to find wisdom. Where does wisdom come from? There are those who want to be a little bit more sophisticated in their understanding of the gospel. This happens all the time in the modern church. Uh, we want people to be wise, but the message of the gospel is simple. And really, humility is the key. Wisdom uh, that is not of God puffs up and begins divisiveness. But wisdom that comes from God and, and a simple message of the gospel leads to humility, which leads to unity and mercy and, and so on. Again, it's an attitude that's called into question. Do we approach the gospel message by simple faith, or do we try to make it harder than it is to fulfill some sense of worthiness in ourselves by becoming smarter than God uh, asks us to be? The second point, then, is that the gospel message is simple, and it's, it must be believed by faith through godly wisdom. So Paul says, Jews demand a sign, Gentiles desire wisdom. Ultimately, though, we have to ask ourselves, what is the reason we choose to believe? Paul says in Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It doesn't mean that he's afraid to proclaim the gospel because of what others might think about him or what others might do to him. He knows this message is crazy. What he's not ashamed of is that even though it's a foolish message, it's the truth. He's not ashamed of saying that he is a sinful person in need of salvation, and he cannot come up in his own mind with something better than Jesus Christ hung on a cross. Paul knows that this is a crazy statement, but by faith he believes it to be true, and God's wisdom is greater than human wisdom. By faith he trusts that. And then the third point would be, against all human wisdom is the acknowledgement of our weakness and humility that we actually gain wisdom. It's through the fear of God that we begin to understand. It would be good for me and you to acknowledge that we're not grade A people, not a single one of you listening or me talking. Yet somehow God makes us wise unto salvation, and he makes us useful tools in the advancement in the proclamation of the gospel. 
The reason God does this, according to Paul, is to ensure that everyone knows that it's God who has the power to do such thing. Again, this is all absolutely ridiculous. Jesus being hung on a cross, crazy. God choosing you and me to be God's servants, absolutely insane. But this is the way God does things. Ultimately, the salvation of God calls us to humility. No one is able to boast except in God and God alone in the works of Jesus Christ. This is the basis of true wisdom. It's also the basis of how we relate to both God and to our fellow human beings. And finally, the Matthew passage. Again, we have themes of humility and wisdom that show up here. The whole passage can be related to the Corinthians passage, if you'd like. Everything Christ says here is crazy from, a human, uh, from, from the perspective of human wisdom. Uh, the reason why the Beatitudes are so important for today is because it, it shows the, the exact opposite of what the world says. First of all, in the world, you're, you're told that happiness is the key to fulfillment. But in Christianity, it's not happiness, but purpose, purposefulness. It's following Christ. It's giving up your happiness in order to find true happiness, giving up your life in order to find real life. So Frederick Nietzsche is the person who has probably done the most work in bringing down Christianity uh, than anybody in, in the you know, modern history anyway. So the reason why it's important that we understand the Beatitudes is because Nietzsche himself has created a whole system against the Beatitudes, and most of the people sitting in your pews today have been influenced by Nietzsche, and most every single one of the teenagers that you have in your church have a Nietzschean thought about morals. Very quickly, we'll say this. For Nietzsche, he thought that the Beatitudes were the quintessential example of weakness, and he, it had to go. So in his, his philosophy, in order to become truly human and truly great, someone had to, had to ixnay these slave values or slave morality, as he, as he would term the Beatitudes, and you would have to create your own values you would have to create purpose and meaning and so on and so forth. And it cannot be found in the weakness ideas of, of the Beatitudes. He thought that basically slaves or weak people looked at powerful people and then made up values that would condemn the powerful people so that they were justified in staying weak. That's why he hated the Beatitudes and that's why he hated Christianity. It enabled weakness to become a virtue and then it penalized people or it made power or strength uh, a negative negative thing so anyway that's important for you to know because that's that's the world we live in so here's an outline briefly that you can use for the beatitudes you can put the first and second beatitude together the poor in spirit and mourning uh, is simply the acknowledgement that without god we're spiritually bankrupt it's a realization that nothing material can satisfy our deepest longings second the third beatitude speaks of humility and considering others above yourself, even when it means giving up your own rights. That's what meekness means. Uh, but you put faith, you put your faith in God by giving up something here on earth. You're putting your faith in God that will lift you up. Right? That's important. Uh, third, the fourth beatitude speaks of hungering and thirsting. Right? So this is a constant reminder that God's word is what sustains us in this world. Human wisdom says you must have enough material to provide for you and your family, and if you don't do it, then nobody's going to feed you. But Christ says, you know, consider the birds of the air. Consider the lilies of the field. He says, man doesn't live on bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
Fourth is that the fifth and sixth beatitude can be put together. Being merciful and pure in heart is connected by Jesus Christ further down in chapter 5. Jesus speaks about retaliation and love for the enemy. And in the last uh, verse of chapter 5, connects those and says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. In other words, Christ connects mercy with perfection. Be pure of heart so that you can be merciful. Remember, Peter says, How many times should I forgive my brother? And then fifth, the seventh and eighth beatitude can be put together. Peacemaking and being persecuted are bound together because as Christians we have to choose peace over vengeance as hard as it may be. The ends never justify the means. If someone persecutes you, the answer is not to hit back harder, but is to trust in God and seeking peace through godly means. Now, these beatitudes make absolutely no sense outside of a faith in a God that can do incredible things, that can protect you, that he can, he can be your sanctuary, your refuge, and your strength. So oftentimes when we talk about faith, we sell it short by simply saying it's believing that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. True faith is believing and trusting God in such a way that you can act in faith so that God will protect you and make things right. That's all I got for you today. I hope your uh, week goes well as you study. And uh, may the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you, and be gracious unto you. Amen. Amen.